Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Ah, it's Heard Tell Show. It is Friday, June the 17th, year of our Lord 2022. We got a ton to do today. Uh, we're going to talk a little electric vehicles. We're going to talk a little Dolly Parton. And our good friend, Michael Siegel, is returning to the show. That's Dr. Michael Siegel to you when we're talking science. We're going to talk politics. He's also a resident of the state of Pennsylvania. He's been writing. We're going to have a grown folk talk about a really tough subject a lot of people have on their minds. January 6th, we're going to loop into it. Two hot button issues with Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania and Ashley Babbitt from the January 6th, the tragedy where she lost her life in the midst of that. We're going to parse all that out with our friend Michael Siegel. Grown folk talk tough subjects we're going to hash all that through with him but first we're going to start with some art oh i know you want to talk hardcore culture and politics you'll be fine just settle in for a minute our friend uh, ld burnett joined ordinary-times.com we'll link to this in the show notes you need to read the whole thing but the end of her piece she talks about art and culture and the wider use of art here as far as like art criticism and how the arts reflect society i want you to listen to this it's very important And I think it's a good way to set the mood for this last show of this week. Quoting L.D. Burnett here, it's a fascinating cultural moment and perhaps an instructive one for us today. Like the English dramatists of the 17th century, which is what most of this piece is about, we live in a time of great political turmoil when the usual systems for legitimate power, royal secession in their case, free and fair democratic elections in our case, are themselves facing crisis of legitimacy. The threat of both extrajudicial and civil violence lurks behind and beneath our increasingly polarized political landscape, just as it did then. And then as now, areas of culture, theater, poetry, music, the visual arts are sites of conflict in a roiling contest for power. This is L.D. Burnett writing in Ordinary-Times.com. It is tempting to view culture wars as bloodless proxy for real political conflict or real contests of power. It is tempting to view aesthetic matters and aesthetic controversies, say arguments over the genre of superhero movies or genre-bending practices of sampling, remixing, and meme fiction as frivolous or irrelevant struggles in a world filled with more immediate existential dangers and threats of impending political violence. We should resist the temptation to underestimate or devalue the role of the arts and artists in collectively hashing out what matters to us as a society, as a culture, as a dismally self-destructive species particularly in times when direct confrontation between different factions and power groups could lead to an explosion of physical violence. As the threat of civil unrest or political violence grows, the areas of culture will become more, not less important, as sites for challenge and resistance. The more dangerous the times, the better artists must become at oblique critique, and the sharper audiences must become at reading between the lines and behind the lines. When an artist chooses to take a public stand, as Dryden did in making explicit his loyalty to James II as the rightful heir to the English throne, 
They should recognize that such a stand might cost them their career and their livelihood. In times past, and not so distant at that, such commitments have cost artists their lives. May our times be spared and our artists be unsparing. There's a lot of level of meanings there. But as usual, we're going to let you figure that out for yourself. Read the whole piece. Art is important, and our artists are important. And it's not just about culture and politics. It's about both. And our art and culture reflects that. LD Burnett, writing in ordinary-times.com. We have a whole lot of show for this Friday. Stick around. More Hertel right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. Let's talk electric vehicles for a minute. Now, let's let's just have a grown folk talk real quick. I'm not against electric vehicles. I'm not even really against Tesla, although the way it's managed and built up, I've got all kinds of issues with. And let's not get into the Elon Musk thing right now. I'm really not against electric vehicles. I'm not against new technology. I'm not against trying to make things that are greener and more environmentally sound. All that stuff is fantastic. Here's what I am against. I'm against unicorns whether they ride in on white horses, political promises, or driving a Tesla. There's facts on the ground, there's reality, and there's hard truths. The fact of the matter with electric vehicles is they do solve some problems. They also create new problems. And there's also a technology gap, there's a rhetoric gap, and there's also a reality gap when it comes to electric vehicles. Let's work through some of this real quickly. Our friend Connor Tomlinson, a UK contributor, to Young Voices. He's all over media over there, but he does a little bit of writing over here. Now, just for clarification, Connor's all for conservation. In fact, he's part of the uh, British Conservation Union. He wants environmentally friendly policies, but he also deals with facts. Remember, we're not going to do unicorns here. We're going to do facts. If you want to have electric vehicles, you need to deal with facts so you can present your case. Let's talk some facts here. This is from his piece in C3 Magazine. We will link to it in the show notes. Please read the whole thing for yourself. For example, the U.S., this is Connor Thomason writing, has 280 million registered vehicles as of 2021. Last year, data was available. 91% of Americans drive to work in personal vehicles. Despite some suggestions by European politics that big cities can subsist on transport alone, many states remain rural and navigatable only by car. Let's take a pause here real quick. And most of our major cities don't have the infrastructure for public transit like Europe does. Very few of them do. And even the ones that do have erstwhile public transit, it's not always well run. Go talk to anybody that works in D.C. and has to ride the metro daily. They will explain to you that just because it's there doesn't mean it works great. Okay, we just built different in America. It's just the way it is, especially in a country where it's about 50-50 rural and urban. You're going to have to have private vehicles. So that's unicorn number one we need to dispense with. Okay, moving on with the piece. Biden would like EV, President Biden meaning here, would like EVs to be 50% of all car sales by 2030, which is a soundbite point, not in reality. Electric cars comprise only 4% of annual sales currently in the U.S. Consumer demand means Teslas are $47,000 minimum. Additional 41-year record inflationary pressures caused by inflation, of course, makes upgrading to EVs unaffordable at this time to most people. Let's take another pause here real quick. 
Here's another unicorn we need to get rid of. I know gas prices are around $5 for most people over in some places. California is a lot higher. Other places, it's a little cheaper. But let's just round it off to 5 bucks for the purposes of conversation. People who are struggling to pay $5 gas with a regular gasoline vehicle are not going to solve that problem by buying a $50,000 vehicle to save money on gas monthly. Let me say that one more time, real slow for the folks in overflow and those of you from Logan. People are not going to solve a hike in gas prices and dealing with $5 gas that they can't afford by buying a $50,000 or more electric vehicle to save on monthly gas bill. Everybody okay with that? That's just fact. Let's get rid of that unicorn. Moving along now. Subsidies account for 18% of the vehicle cost. Biden's Build Back Better Act also included rebates. He goes through the details of these rebates, but it's still an excessive cost. Here's the nut of a lot of this, though. Rurally dispersed communities will find it harder to access EV chargers outside their households. Inversely, built-up cities will see occupants of high-rise apartments competing for parking slots with charger access. Attracting investment for upgrading charging infrastructure should be done on a state-by-state needs basis. An application system based on the Opportunity Zone application model could aid in prioritizing and prioritizing EV charger rollout by location. This comes to the Build Back Better promise of putting 500,000 chargers by 2030 to help meet that goal. But finally, and this is another important unicorn we need to deal with electric vehicles, manufacturing hurdles must be overcome. EVs solve a green energy problem, but they also create environmental problems. Listen very carefully here. As with many made in American goods, domestic EV production has the potential to reduce emissions with some supply chain estimates up to 80%. This is Connor Tomlinson writing again. However, EVs require six times the minerals as combustion engine vehicles, especially in their batteries. China controls more than a third of the world's precious metal deposits and 80% of annual global battery production. For this reason, China makes more EVs than any other country. Another unicorn we need to deal with. We need to be energy self-reliant so we don't have to deal with untoward nations like in the Middle East, like with the Saudis, like with the UAE, like with other countries like this that have great human rights violations and quite frankly are very suspect on how they've treated us over the years. China is just as bad, if not worse, plus it's a comparable global power and a rival to us. For them to have a lock on this technology and for us to purposely go rushing headlong into that technology where we would be dependent on them is not only silly, it's not only untoward, it's probably morally wrong and terrible policy for our country. We need to invest on our own supply chains for these minerals before we start getting dependent on them. Another unicorn we need to get rid of. In the meantime... Until innovations in extraction techniques or the billionaire space race makes asteroid mounting a reality, that's not coming anytime soon, transport will rely on gas and electricity in equal measure. It is of paramount importance, then, that purchasing power, not punitive policies, keep the market going. That's a nice fancy way, because he's a better writer than I am, Connor Thomason is, of saying, just deal with the facts. Don't pitch us unicorns riding in on electric vehicles. If you want electric vehicles to take over the roads, they can, but there's going to be a process to it, and you're not going to be able to skip steps or you're going to cause a whole lot of problems, and you need to listen to people's. When the consumer market's ready for it, they'll go running to it, but they won't go running for a unicorn because they know they don't exist. More Herd Tell right after this. Without
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. back to Hertel. Okay, the most appearances ever on the Hertel program. The streak continues and it extends like one of those bronchiosauruses that you can see behind him if you're watching on the YouTube channel. Uh, Michael Siegel, my friend, how are you, good doctor, sir? I'm good. How are you? Uh, we're hanging in there. Uh, normally we talk science, but since you are in the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, there's some political shenanigans about in your state of residence, my friends. So we're going to talk about that first. Uh, you've been writing about it in Ordinary Times uh, quite frequently on a couple different things. But with the January 6th committee doing things and the January 6th incident being on people's minds, um, the GOP nominee for governor, Doug Mastriano, is back in the news. Um, let's let's walk through this real, real slow for the folks in the back and them from Logan that are in overflow, because I don't want to lose people here. But you tweeted about this, the Reichstag fire. Now, I lived in Germany. I know a pretty good amount of German history. This is the cause celeb of false flag operations for a lot of people. This is what they point to. Just walk us through that real quick, if you would, please, sir. Um, that has a lot of meanings to it. Some people see that as a good thing. A lot of people like me see that as one of the great evils of our world because that opened the door to Nazism in Germany. Uh, just walk us through that real slow why that kind of rhetoric is very specific and should be very pointed and weighty when we use it. So the what caused this to come up was that Doug Mastriano, who won the Republican nomination for governor since we last talked, uh, compared the uh, prosecution of people connected with January 6th to the uh, aftermath of the Reichstag fire. So 1933, the Reichstag burned down. And uh, when they investigated, they found this um, D Dutch communist, Marinus van der Lubbe, in the there, and they blamed him for the for the uh, fire. And then they used that to justify going after Hitler's political opponents and uh, attacking communists. And Hindenburg uh, issued a decree that suspended civil liberties. There were mass arrests, et cetera, et cetera. It was one of the key. Uh, stepping stones to the Nazis' eventual one-party rule. And so the comparison that Mastriano is sort of drawing is that this is, this is like that, that they're using the January 6th incident to try to go after Trump supporters, to try to go after conservatives, to go right, try to go after Republicans uh, the same way. So you have the Hitler comparison there, which is uh, egregious enough. But the Reichstag has become sort of a thing with conspiracy theorists that Although at the time, no one said this, over the decades, a lot of people think that the Reichstag fire was a false flag. And what false flag means is that it was actually the Nazis that set the fire, and then van der Lubbe was a patsy that they blamed it on so that they would have an excuse to go over communists. 
Um, and in fact, if you mention this, a lot of people will take it as a fait accompli that it was a false flag. I am one of those who doesn't believe it was. This wasn't something that was really talked about at the time. Gehring joked about it at one point. This is mentioned in Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. But it wasn't until decades later that people came to this idea that it was a false flag. But if you look into it, Vanderlubi had mental pro- health problems. He was an ardent communist. He'd been engaged in violent political action before. So it's not that surprising that he would do something like this. But it is, whenever someone mentions the Reichstag, you know that what they're talking about, that's code for false flag. And this has been part of the response to January 6th. I mean, the response to January 6th from people who want to pretend it wasn't what it was has been sort of all over the place. But one of the parts of that is saying, well, it was actually Antifa. It was actually the FBI. It was actually these people creating a false flag so they would have an excuse to make Trump look bad or to go after Trump supporters. And so he's sort of keying into that kind of conspiracy theory paranoia when he brings that subject up. Now, the Reichstag, just for people that don't know the nomenclature, that's Germany's capital. That's where their parliament sits. That's their main building. It's since been rebuilt. It's a fabulous place to visit. If you ever get a chance, they have this great globe structure on top that you can visit. Um, that, that that would be like burning down the capital. That's why it's such a direct reference here. Yeah. All right. I've tried to be as nuanced as possible when dealing with January 6th. I think you had a couple different classifications of people that were involved there. I think you had the go-along, get-along mob that was just kind of following everybody else. I think that was the large amount of the people there. I think you had the rioter mob, which was about a third of them, from what we can tell, that got violent with people. And then I think you had this small cadre of people, and we're seeing this now in the indictments and the other things that are going through the criminal justice system. There was this cadre of people that was really trying to do something untoward and you know, it was so half-baked that it was never going to work. I almost hate to use terms like insurrection, things like that, because they weren't going to get anywhere close to that. But they clearly had some kind of a plan to cause major trouble. I think you have to break it down that way. Part of the problem with people like Mastriano is they want to go back to this broad brush where, oh, well, everybody just got caught up in the moment, and it was, well, the FBI coerced everybody into it, or this was just people walking around the lobby and carrying the podium and laughing. And, you know, we all saw the pictures. Frankly, the media didn't help because they were playing up the stupid parts of it instead of the violent parts as it was happening. We all remember that. I think just the fact that he wants to go through the broad brush instead of dealing with what actually happens plays directly into this false flag nonsense. And my rule of thumb on Twitter is anybody that starts talking about a false flag, A, doesn't know what they're talking about, or B, has an agenda because there hasn't been a successful false flag in years. I think just the fact that he goes to that broad brush and then immediately goes to the conspiratorial, that's very telling to me. Is it to you? Yeah, I I think what you're saying about the breakdown is exactly right. One of the things coming out in the hearings is that Groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers really spearheaded this and you know, were engaged in violent acts and so forth. And then there were a, a large crowd of people that that uh, sort of went in, went along with it. And Mastriano, who I, I will say is cooperating with the January 6th committee and providing information, um, he's been coy about what happened on that day. He, he organized buses to bring a lot of people down there. There are pictures of him on the restricted grounds after the and near where the barriers were breached, but there's no evidence that he engaged in any violent action. If I had to guess, I would say he was with that crowd that sort of followed the people who were doing violent things in, but did not do anything himself. That's, that appears to be what the case is. But 
it's very, I think it's very difficult for a lot of people to make that separation, that there were people who were doing bad things. There were people who were not doing bad things, but just sort of there. And there were people who were maybe even trying to stop things. We, there was videotape of people going to the police, telling them, you need help. They're, this is going bad. And I think that that's a, a subtle separation that needs to happen. We need to be able to say, these people who did this thing, who did these violent things were bad. Every, you know, a lot of other people were either misguided or, or so forth, but weren't engaging in violent things. But there's a, a tendency to sort of put them all as one blob. And on, on both sides, there's a tendency for the left wing to sort of see everyone as part of that violent mob when actually it was a, a smaller a portion of them. I mean, what they did still wasn't right, breaching the Capitol, but it was different than attacking police, smashing down barricades, trying to hunt down members of Congress, that sort of thing. Um, you know, there is sort of a comparison to what happened in 2020 with the George Floyd protests, that you had a mass majority of people who were peacefully protesting, and then you had this small cadre of people who were engaged in riot, using the opportunity to riot and smash things and steal and so forth. And there have been thousands of prosecutions of those people who, who did that, that thing without indicting the people who were peacefully protesting. Here's the thing with Mastriano. We know he was there. We have the pictures. He was on the grounds of the Capitol. I don't think there's any pictures of him being inside the Capitol, but he was on, um, just broadly speaking, kind of the steps area, the greater outside area that he was inside the barricades. There's pictures of him around the barricades. There's no pictures of him doing anything illegal or untoward, but he was there. Yes, we know that. This came out after you wrote back during the primaries. In fact, the week before the primaries. And I agreed with you. I think he was already unfit for office just based on the things he was saying about uh, the election, uh, some of his personal views on things. I think he's profoundly unfit for office before this. How do we factor this in where he was there? He was an organizer. And again, I'm not saying that as one of the criminal elements, he organized people to be at the event. And he was at the event. How do we add that into this? Because we already agreed that this guy's not fit for office. Is this another layer to it? Does this increase it? How do, how do we even process it? Because we're kind of off the map here with a political candidate that we're already like, this guy shouldn't be in office. And it's like, oh, he's at one of the really dark pages of American history. And this is on top of that. I don't even know where to even start with that, really. And I, I think it's 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 certainly a factor to me. The things that make him unsuited, more unsuited for office are some of the views he's advocated uh, he uh, he was a part of the people group that wanted to really push Republicans to overturn the electoral results in Pennsylvania and give the electoral votes to Trump, which uh, I think was uh, it makes him very unsuited to office. He's also now that he's governor advocating a plan, this really crazy plan that, you know, to get rid of dead voters and things like that on the rolls, we're going to unregister everyone in the state and make everyone re-register. And first of all, that's a violation of federal law. It's a violation of state law. You have to rewrite a lot of state laws to do that. It's also would put a gigantic burden on local and state boards that run elections that are already overburdened with try, just trying to keep things going as they are. And it also has sort of a dark history. There were states in the Jim Crow era that made people read register every year because they knew that was a bigger burden on certain people than it was on other people. Correct. So there's a, there's a history there. So to me, the January 6th thing, yes, you should consider that as a, not as so much that he's, a, you know, an insurrectionist or a criminal. He, there's no evidence that he did anything criminal on that day, but that it shows a lack of judgment. 
I think that that's a very good point. But I also think you should consider some of the extreme views this guy is advocating uh, in, in, in that are connected with the January 6th idea that Trump won the election and was being cheated out of it. I just don't I cannot in my own mind get around the fact that let's let's just take the bulk of people that was at the rally at the Oblisk, which is the, the grassy area between the White House and the end of the mall there where Trump spoke, which kind of kicked this thing off. And then they march up to the Capitol, taking that mass of people that went up there. And we now know the Proud Boys and that crew had actually left ahead of time to go and, and presage all this. There's just no way if you're in that group of people and you attended that event and then you go to walk at the Capitol, you would have to have a complete lack of agency to not know that, okay, this is not good unless you're completely committed to the cause or you believe what's going on. There's just no way a rational person goes, this massive group of people, especially when they start throwing barricades and stuff, like I have no sympathy for anybody that went in the building because there's no way in your mind that went, oh, this is okay for us to go in the building. And I know a lot of people just walked through orderly and laughed and took selfies and left. I get that too. Mm -hmm. I just can't put my mind around it. I was like, that's the United States Capitol. It's a really, really big building. Like you don't accidentally walk in there, especially in a mob. Like I, I just can't in my own mind forgive it. Like, look, you knew something not okay or at least not normal was happening here. And you didn't turn around and leave. And the photos we got of Mastriano is he's not one of those guys running to the cops going, hey, you need to organize better. You need to call backup. We got people doing it. We got Trump supporters doing that, going to the cops like this has gotten out of hand. You need to call people. We have video that he's not one of those guys. And a lot of these other people weren't either. And I judge him for it. Yeah, I think it's entirely appropriate to judge someone uh, for something like that. You know, you have a I'm. Mobs get swept up. That's that's how mobs work. But you have you have to exercise a personal degree of agency of judging the moment that you're in. And especially when you're a state legislator, as he was, and you've you're you've let a bunch of people down there. You have to take that as a responsibility that you're former 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 army officer like he has taken an oath involving this stuff. I hold him to a higher account on that account. Yeah. And you have to sort of take some agency that you're because you are in that position of being a state legislature, because you brought people down there, you have a responsibility, you know, to to not get swept up in the moment. Yeah, Michael Siegel. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break when we come back. Uh, since we're talking hot button January 6th issue, you wrote about the hottest of hot button January 6th issues. One of the people that did actually die that day, Ashley Babbitt, we'll get into that, your ordinary dash times piece on that. Our good friend, Dr. Michael Siegel, uh, talking a little politics with our scientist friend, but he's good, level-headed, lots of wisdom. We're going to continue to talk through these really tough issues in a grown folk way with him right after this as her tale continues. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, we're having some grown folk talk about a really tough issue. January 6th, everybody gets heated about it. Everybody's got opinions. We're talking to our good friend, Michael Siegel, about it. All right, buddy, you at Ordinary-Times.com, you waded into the deep end of this thing. Um, I'm just going to let you set it up because I don't want to put words in your mouth here because it's such a touchy issue for a lot of people. 
Um, we talk about the deaths surrounding it, not directly. The one uh, poor individual had a stroke. Did it cause because I know people debate, you know, who actually got hurt. Death counts is the one death that is inarguably connected to January 6th is Ashley Babbitt. Again, I'm just going to let you set it up, but you wrote about it. We've all seen this. This whole here's the thing with Ashley Babbitt with me just to set this up. The entire thing's on video, pretty much from the moment she went into the building to the moment that she was shot. We've got everything she did on video. You can watch almost all, but I think about three and a half minutes of her time in the Capitol is on video. It's a tough spot because we've all watched it. You know, if if the person that shot her waits 30 seconds, that tag team is there and that situation is probably diffused and that doesn't happen. He didn't have that kind of hindsight that we have. She was going through the speaker's lobby. And for folks that don't know this, the speaker's lobby, members of Congress can't just walk in there. This is a restricted area on a normal day, let alone on a day like this where they're trying to evacuate Congress members. Like you, you can't just walk in there. There's a door there for a reason. OK, um, but your take on Ashley Babbitt and you dealt with who has responsibility for Ashley Babbitt. Yeah, what, what actually motivated this was. Every time the January 6th committee comes up, um, Ashley Babbitt starts trending on Twitter with people asking for justice for her. And then what actually made me write was seeing people's responses that were like, well, she deserved what she got. And my feeling was, no, she didn't. You know, no one, I don't think anyone deserves to be shot. There may be circumstances where someone has to be shot, but no one deserves to die. But you know, the situation was that you had the speaker's lobby, you had a barricade, you had three police officers there with a much larger crowd trying to break in. And she tried to crawl in through a window and was shot and killed. And the investigation by not one, but two agencies, the D.C. police and the, I believe the Secret Service concluded that the uh, shooting was justified. And a lot of people are going around saying you know, she was executed, that she was, you know, trying to stop the rioting or whatever. And, and these aren't, aren't really true. But I actually I feel some sympathy for her. I feel bad for her family. I mean, she you know, this was a woman who should not be dead, but I don't blame the police for what happened. And usually I'm very skeptical of shootings. But in this case, I I think that the uh, analysis, I mean, we've all seen the videotape. I think the analysis was correct. And what I talked about was. You know, if you want to affix blame for what happened, I think it goes to Donald Trump and his supporters for the stop the steal thing. You know, they, what's one of the things that's coming out of the January 6th committee was every run around Donald Trump was telling him you lost the election. Bill Barr told him that. His children told him that. His son-in-law told him that. Everyone around him was telling that and he just refused to believe them or just didn't want to, didn't care. Um, the people he was listening to were people like Rudy Giuliani who was telling him that he, that he won. And so you know, he continued to, he lied effectively, continued to feed that lie, continued to rile up his supporters saying your democracy is being stolen, your country is being stolen. They gathered them on January 6th. Remember, January 6th was picked because that was the day that the vote was going to be certified. And the reason they had that rally was because this crackpot theory emerged that Mike Pence could overturn the election. And our friend Bert Lyko wrote about this in ordinary times that this was just nonsense. There was no legal way that Mike Pence could overturn the election. And even Congress could at most send those certifications back to the states to confirm them. They couldn't just override them. And so the people were gathered there on a false premise. They were then riled up, 
you know, they were turned loose. And, you know, the, the main violence was started by the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, but those were also stimulated. One of the, another thing that's come out of the January 6th committee was when Donald Trump at the debate was asked to denounce the Proud Boys and told them to stand by, that they use that as a recruiting tool. That was one of the things that they used to build up their numbers to the point where they could breach the Capitol. And so, you know, Ashley Babbitt was a grown woman. She had agency. She made her decisions. But I think you have to put some responsibility on the people who gathered a mob, set them loose, knowing that violence might happen, that someone might get killed. You know, they didn't specifically single out her, but they set the mob loose in a circumstance that might result in people dying. And, you know, we, there's a very specific legal definitions of who's responsible, incitement and all those. Again, our lawyer friends write about that. So there's not a legal responsibility, but there is, I think, a moral responsibility for what happened. You know, there's a line in the Bible I'm fond of quoting that, not, uh, that you shall not put a stumbling block in front of the blind, which is interpreted by most sages to mean don't put people in positions where they're tempted to do bad things. You know, don't provoke people to do bad things. And I think in this case, with two months of lies and the rally and everything else that was going on, that created a situation where someone could die. And so if you want to put responsibility on people, I think that's where some, at least some of the responsibility goes. Not a legal responsibility, but a moral responsibility. Yeah, set up to fail is the phrase that I always use. That's the same line of thought there. They were set up to fail. Here, here's my problem. I've spent a lot of time lately banging on our current president, Joe Biden, because his words matter. And I don't care if you're talking fuel prices, the economy, whatever. You can't be big talking Sheriff Joe and say certain things because it matters and it holds up and people listen to it and countries respond to it. And markets respond to it. My problem with Donald Trump has always been from the beginning. I don't think he's a QAnon believer. I don't think he believes all this conspiracy stuff, but he played footsies with it and allowed it because it suited his purposes. But the problem is, and because he was so self-centered and because he doesn't have any leadership qualities, and I know people talk about him being a leader, we'll hash that out some other times, but this, this is bad leadership qualities. He never stopped to do accountability to understand that, like, there's people that really will believe this. And they'll not only believe it, they'll act on it. And they'll fight for it. And in this case, people died because of it. But he doesn't have any accountability to understand that his words mattered. That one line of him in a 2015 debate, of saying no QAnon's utter nonsense, and most of this goes away. Those are always going to be the diehards. Mm -hmm. There wouldn't have been this build and build and build and build and build thing. But he played footsies with it because it suited his purpose. It flattered his ears. It flattered his ego. He liked it. And this is the end result. I think he absolutely has moral responsibility for January 6th. I think he has direct responsibility because obviously his inner circle had quite a bit to do with this with what we're learning from John Eastman and others. And I don't care if you get mad. That's just the facts on the ground. He has moral culpability. I don't think there's going to be criminal liability here because I just don't see them making that case. But we have five years of Donald Trump playing footsies with this people. And this was the ultimate result of him because he was never going to stop them as long as they were acting on his behalf. I don't know any other way to call that but being culpable. Am I, yeah. am I way off base? But that's just where, like, beyond politics, beyond policy, beyond parties, you you started this ball rolling, you kept it rolling, and when it ended up chasing you out of the temple as a big rock that almost crushed everything, if a few things hadn't broke, and and only I have no idea why we didn't have a body count attached to January 6th when you watch all that video back. It all started with him, 
year after year after year after year of no accountability and not standing up to this nut jobbery and saying this is nonsense because he liked it and it flattered him. And that's morally repugnant to me. Yeah. And the comparison I sometimes make is to um, September 11th conspiracy theories. Whenever I would hear a congressperson make noises in that direction, I would get really angry because you're lending credibility to a conspiracy theory that is going to motivate people to do bad things. And QAnon, for those of you who don't know, QAnon is this theory that emerged on the internet that there was actually a secret satanic cannibal pedophile cabal in Washington. And Donald Trump was elected to bring all these people to justice. And he was asked several times, you know, what do you think of this? Do you, can you denounce it? And so forth. And he said, well, I don't know much about it. I just know they support me. And that's great. And you, when you let these things fester, they get bad. Ah, that's almost worse, really. I yeah. mean, it really is. It is winking at it. Because then, then you're either too stupid to function or you're in on it, either which way you're out. Like, and even aside from January 6th, I mean, Ashley Babbitt was steeped in QAnon stuff. Even aside from that, this stuff is tearing apart families. I mean, people have abducted their own children because they think their spouse is part of this conspiracy theory. You know, this has been this has been really bad. The pizza and, thing, the guy walked into Comet Pizza with an assault rifle and by yeah, a miracle, they, of God they, didn't they kill a bunch of people because he realized that, it was crazy. Yeah, they came up with this idea that pizza orders for Comet Ping Pong Pizza were actually orders for sex slaves. And some guy went in there with a rifle to rescue all the sex slaves. And, and thankfully, no one was killed. But this, this stuff has consequences. And, you know, like I, if imagine if you had a Democratic president who was feeding 9-11 or winking at 9-11 conspiracy theories rather than just rejecting them, you know, and what that would motivate. When you tell people that members of Congress are literally eating children and that is fed and not denounced by people in power, what do you think is going to happen? You know, when our children in danger is one of those things that bypasses our normal moral filters, you know, that when we hear that a child is in danger of being hurt or harmed or killed, we want to do everything we can to save them. That's, I mean, it's just a natural instinct. It is a moral thing for human beings. That's part of how we're wired. And when you have something like QAnon wiring into that, so you're talking about something tapping into very, very dangerous and powerful instincts that can motivate people to do really awful things. Michael Siegel, our good friend, this is a heavy conversation, but I think we have to have it because I think we keep taking these things piecemeal instead of taking them broad picture like this. We talked about that broad brush Mastriano used earlier. You know, there, there's so much to this. I think we got to keep coming back out and zoom out a little bit and just go, no, this this did not happen in a vacuum. It happened in a sequence. And the sequence is really, really important here. Um, just real quick in a few minutes we got left. I, I'm, I'm not uh, optimistic about the results of the January 6th commission. I don't think Congress should have been investigating this any anyway, because number one, you don't let victims of a crime prosecute the crime. And number two is we now know there was people that was involved in it on top of that um this should have been a special prosecutor that sort of thing this should have never been a congressional committee however they did it they did it we're going to get some information out of it i'm not super optimistic anything actionable is going to actually come out of this what's your thoughts on it uh i i sort of agree i think that's the key feeling of everyone that not a lot of actionable stuff is going to come out of it i think that a lot of information is being revealed i mean i'm kind of a political junkie and some of the stuff coming out is uh is information to me about how the 
so much of this was spearheaded by the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and so forth. So I think having that information out there is going to be helpful. But in terms of if it's going to move the needle on anyone, how they feel about January 6th, I don't know. I, I think it may be at the fringes. I don't think it's going to result in any legal consequences for anyone. That's already being handled by the Justice Department. But um, but we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens. It's it's hard to anticipate how people are going to respond to things politically. But uh, yeah, I sort of agree that I don't think this is going to move a lot of people's feelings on this issue. No, I think this cake is baked and everybody's pretty much where they're at on it, unfortunately. But there there will be, I think in hindsight, there'll be information here that'll be important for the future. Michael Siegel, my good friend, I appreciate your time. Next time you come back on, we're going to go back to talking about science. I promise. We've had your politics a little heavy lately. We'll uh, because there's actually some really cool stuff going on in the space realm uh, right now that we want to get to. And uh, tell us what you got going on. Why are there dinosaurs chasing you on your background there? And let folks know about where you're writing in your social media, my friend. Especially that great YouTube channel you got where you cover sci-fi. Um, the dinosaurs are because I'm in the midst of watching uh, the BBC Apple TV Plus series prehistoric planet which is a nature documentary about dinosaurs with uh, attenborough and so forth if you've seen blue planet or any of the things he's done it's in that style and it's how many syllables does he use for bronchiosaurus oh probably about 47 but um <laughs> he's but like 98 isn't he he's 96 years old 96, I hope I, i'm i hope i get to that age and have a tenth of his energy at 96 but it's an extraordinary documentary and if you have the means if you have a subscription or uh, have access to BBC, I, I highly recommend it. Um, probably in a month, the big thing that's going to happen is a release of the first science images and results from JDVST. So uh, that will be really fun when that happens. And uh, I just did a video on uh, the science of Star Wars, which uh, which a lot of people really liked, and uh, hopefully do another video in a couple of weeks. I set off a Twitter argument over the Millennial Falcon because it's supposed to be a cargo ship and the debate is, well, now they've retconned it. It's not actually a cargo ship. It's a tugboat. It was to push other freight that was stacked up, which actually makes it cooler in my mind that they were flying around in a tugboat. But I was like, it, it can't be a cargo vessel because I'm a transporter by trade. You can't load freight on that. That's comically bad freight design. But it, maybe we may have to do a joint one on just, you know, the uh, the transportation fallacies of media. There'll be like six people that care about it, but I care about it. Michael Siegel, my good friend. I appreciate you, sir. Um, one last really quick question though, because I just have to ask you at least one science related thing. Do you think they will actually succeed in killing off daylight savings time? I hope so. The evidence is that it doesn't save any energy, but it hurts people's health and causes traffic accidents. So I certainly hope so. Uh, I think it's one of those things that everyone knows is bad and no one's willing to stop. So maybe it'll happen on a state by state basis, but, uh, I hope so. What a statement for the times we live in. Everybody knows it's bad, but nobody wants to stop it. Uh, Dr. Michael Siegel, our really good friend. Thanks for the time, my friend. And uh, we'll do something a little lighter next time. I promise, buddy. All right. Glad to be on again. Thank you, sir.
All right, Hertel. Let's do a palate cleanser before we go into the weekend in our great last segment. Uh, this is from our buddy Keith Conrad. Sends out the great uh, new SideQuest newsletter with all kinds of tidbits. Clark County, Indiana. That's uh, just north of Louisville, Kentucky, and across the river right there. Uh, state troopers came across an unlikely vehicle on the southern Indiana High Interstate. An electric Walmart cart. On Monday morning around 5 a.m., senior tripper Rod Caudill came across a man riding an electronic cart and pushing a construction barrel on I-265 in Clark County, according to a Facebook post by the Sellersburg Department of the Indiana State Police. ISP said the man was taken to Louisville, Kentucky for pending charges. The cart was recovered and returned to Walmart. You never know what you will see on the interstate ISP road. Officials want to remind Hoosiers that unauthorized vehicles like electric carts are not allowed on the interstate, plus slower vehicles should use the right-hand lane. A vehicle that travels at a speed less than the established maximum shall travel in the right lanes to provide the better flow of traffic on the interstate highways, wrote the ISP, because somebody's way missing the point here. There are some exceptions for slower vehicles, of course, like inclement weather, traffic conditions, or given an authorized emergency vehicle in operation. No note uh, in the ISP uh, nomenclature for a Walmart cart. Frankly, if you've ever tried to use a Walmart cart and realized that most of the time people forget to plug them in, I'm shocked the charge lasts that long. That must be some kind of a record if they go look it up. Folks, don't take the Walmart carts out on the interstates, especially in Indiana, because they'll ship you back to Kentucky. More hotel right after this. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Now, welcome back to Hurtel Show. Okay, we always end on an uplifting note, and is there anything in the world more uplifting than the great legendary saint among the rest of us, Dolly Parton uh, from Farrow Magazine? Dolly Parton has long been credited as a highly charitable star, and her latest pledge of $1 million to Vanderbilt University Medical Center is certainly proof of that. The country musician pledged the money towards research into pediatric infectious diseases, looking at how virus and bacteria spread and affect those most vulnerable. I love all children. No children should ever have to suffer, and I'm willing to do my part to try and keep as many of them as can as healthy and safe as possible, Parton said in a release statement. Parton previously donated another million dollars to the institution back in 2021 in order to assist with efforts to work on the COVID-19 vaccine. This helped pivotal research, which assisted the development of the Moderna vaccine. The institution Later said in a statement, quote, for over 40 years, our division has been a national and international leader in studies for the diagnosis, treatment and prevention of life threatening infections. And this gift will accelerate our work and support new ideas elsewhere. Parton has always supported children's charities. Her imagination library has even given over 150 million books to children. 
She remains a symbol of what a star can be, and long may that continue. We've kind of been joking about our national treasures as they go. Maybe we should put Dolly Parton up among whoever. We can't put her on Mount Rushmore. She probably deserves her own. But certainly she is a very, very special person, a great American. God bless her. Who doesn't love Dolly Parton? That'll do it for her to tell. Good way to end the program today on this Friday. Hope you all have a great weekend. Uh, make sure you check up on Twice on Sunday. That'll be a review of all the great interviews this week. And we had really, really good ones. If you just want to listen to those interview segments, uh, the good talks on both the podcasting and the YouTube version are out there. You can listen to those discussions. And of course, full episodes of Herd Tell available. iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, our radio partner, BigTalker.live. Their app is excellent. You can listen to the audio version. You can also watch the video version right on their app. Great product. Happy to partner with them. So we're going to go enjoy our weekend. We hope you do too. Wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. Enjoy your weekend. We'll see you right back here on Monday for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Solomon.